0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to be in the book of James. We spent the first week, a few weeks ago, just by way of introduction, learning who this James was. And we found out that James was the actual blood brother of Jesus. He was a younger brother of Jesus, a half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mother, biologically, and that was Mary. And so James was a literal half-brother of Jesus, and James was the older of several other siblings that were to be born of Joseph and Mary. And interestingly enough, we know from the Gospels that during the three-and-a-half-year public ministry of Jesus, James, who grew up with Jesus in the same home, and his brother, James did not believe in Christ during his three-and-a-half-year ministry and actually mocked Jesus on a few occasions, but after Jesus died rose again from the dead, Jesus made a special appearance to his brother James in resurrected form, and that changed James's life. He came to believe from that point on, totally committed to his brother, but really co- committed to his Lord and Savior in a new way. And that testimony really is in the book of Acts, and James even became one of the key leaders in the church of Jerusalem and then ended up writing this wonderful epistle the book of james and this is probably the first new testament book that was written maybe w- between 10 and 15 years after jesus ascended on high this was the first new testament book authored and so james's audience is jews uh, believing jews jews had, who had become christians because paul's ministry to the gentiles followed after this letter and so that's what we saw in verse 1 james is writing to Twelve tribes, believing Jews who were scattered all over Palestine. They were scattered because they were either pilgrims or many of them have been chased out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Also, there was a famine that hit that area. So they're all over the place. And over the course of 12 to 15 years, when you're scattered all over and you thought Jesus was going to return immediately, like within a month or a week or even a year, it's been 15 years now. and Many of these believing Jews, no doubt, were Could have been struggling with doubts. Wow, I don't know if Jesus is ever going to come back. What's up with that? Or maybe they were uh, experiencing hard times in the new areas where they were scattered of trying to find a living, being persecuted and during the time of famine. And so they had a lot of struggles in life. Some of them, no doubt, after 15 years of waiting, you get acclimated and used to this life, don't we? That's just natural for humans. And we lose our zeal uh, and excitement and passion for Jesus Christ and even the prospects of His coming. So James writes this letter, number one, to shake things up among a lot of uh, believing Jews who maybe had become dull a little bit, but also to encourage those who were struggling in the midst of trials for whatever reason. So he starts out this uh, five-chapter epistle, almost the entire first chapter is on dealing with trials and temptation in life. And so why don't you follow along with me as I read the first 12 verses, and today we're looking at verses 9 to 12. James, a bond servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all "...men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that person expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." Verse 9, "...but let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his high position." And let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because, like flowering grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Him. Just by way of summary, this whole theme, actually verses 1 through up to verse 18, have one one dominant theme and it's trials, dealing with trials in life. And there are some commentators who look at the book of James from chapter to chapter and say that there aren't common themes and you can't really outline it and it's like a whole bunch of Proverbs and they're not really mixed together and they would say that verses 9 through 12 really have nothing to do with verses 1 through 8. And at first blush, you might think that's true, but... I would say, no, verses 1 through 18 has one common theme, and it has to do with how Christians are to be dealing with trials and temptations in their life. And uh, James has been giving us godly wisdom in how to deal with trials, and the first thing he told us and commanded us was that we need to have joy in the midst, or consider it all joy when we endure a trial. Consider it joy. The, The trial isn't joyful, but going through the process of a trial should be considered joy because God is in control and He's trying to accomplish something in our life. That's the source of our joy, is that God is in control. Nothing happens apart from His knowledge. Nothing happens apart from His approval. Nothing happens apart from His purpose. God is totally in control. He is sovereign. And that's why the Christian can totally put trust in God and have joy in the process, knowing that God is in control. Therein lies my joy. It's not an outward, superficial happiness or an emotional feeling. It's an inner contentment, an inner satisfaction, an inner Settledness of soul before God in light of who we are in Christ, knowing that God is totally in control. So Christian, when you're in the midst of a trial, consider it joy. God is doing something and He's doing something for your good, for my good, and also for His glory. That's why He can make that amazing, challenging command, consider it all joy. Then he goes on and says that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's accomplishing His purpose. His purpose is He's trying our faith. He's putting our test, or He's putting our faith to the test to purify it, to purge it, and also to help it grow, to stretch us. Those of you who have ever worked out in the weight room, sometimes if you go to a YMCA or a Nautilus or whatever, they got these silly signs that don't make you feel any better that say "No pain, no gain" as you're grunting and groaning and blood, sweat, and tears. Well, that is really true in the spiritual life no pain no gain and that's what god is accomplishing he's accomplishing gain he's accomplishing growth through life's trials if his children would only let him and believe what he has to say and take him at face value so he's testing our faith he's purging us he's helping us grow and that's what we saw the main point of james's exhortation was last week and as humans as being sinful finite frail when we're in the midst of a trial Many times we just ask, why? Why am I going through this? Or how am I going to make it through this? Or God, have you abandoned me? Or what is going on? And we lack wisdom. We want answers. And that's why verse 5 is there. So if any of you lacks wisdom in the midst of a trial, ask God. Ask God for supernatural wisdom to help you navigate through this trial. Just ask Him. God, give me wisdom. And the promise is God is going to give you the child of God the wisdom you need in the midst of any trial under the one condition that you ask believing in faith, putting your trust in God, in His character, in the promises of His Word without any two-facedness or being double-minded. And that's what it says in verse 5. Uh, if you lack wisdom, ask God, but uh, believe. And verse 6 says, don't doubt and, other, and also don't be a double-minded person. Being A double-minded person is somebody who has loyalty to somebody else and then A minute later, they have loyalty to another person. That's being double-minded. So when we ask God for wisdom in the midst of a trial, we're not supposed to be, okay, God, I need your help, and being loyal to Him. And then in another instant or another minute, in a time of doubt, we're being loyal to somebody else. In contrast to God and what the other else is, it's in our own self-sufficiency. It could be the riches of this world. It could be the wisdom of this world. And then we have a divided loyalty to God and the truth of His Word and all of His provisions and also to the world or our own selves. That is double-minded. If you're going to be like that, God is not going to answer that prayer. You're not going to get the supernatural wisdom that He promised to give you. And as a matter of fact, God is insulted by that double-mindedness. That is the tone of what James is saying when he tells us not to be double-minded. That takes us to verse 9 through 12. Okay, we need to have joy or we need to pursue joy and understand God and who He is. We need to ask wisdom in an ongoing manner in the trials of life because trials are coming all the time. As a matter of fact, thanks to many of you who talked to me after last week's sermon because you're encouraged by the Word of God. And I was reminded from several of you who talked to me about last week's message that, wow, we have people in this church who are going through trials. It's just a great reminder that the Bible is true. It is relevant. It was written 2,000 years ago, and yet it still makes a difference, and it touches people's lives. Our lives are filled with trials, aren't they? And you don't need to raise your hand, but no doubt many of you had trials last week. And here, providentially, we've got God's answer to dealing with trials in life from a godly point of view. And so James wants to encourage us with further supernatural perspective in verses 9 through 12 and how to deal with these trials. I would say that, at least for me, the hardest thing to control in the midst of a trial or an issue of life that is stressful is my thinking. I don't know about you, maybe I'm unique. But it is really hard to control my thinking in the midst of a severe trial or a crisis. Because it is so dominated by either emotions or the immediate circumstances or the apparent impending results that I think might happen. And it is so hard to have the right perspective and control my thinking. And, that, and I would just pose to you that, that what James primarily is trying to address to Christians in dealing with trials is first and foremost, he's addressing their thinking. James wants us to think right because God wants us to think right because God knows if we think right, we will live right. And so first and foremost, that is what James is addressing in the midst of trials. Christian, you need to think right. And I mentioned this last week, when I'm doing pastoral counseling, usually what I'm dealing with is I'm trying to address somebody's thinking, somebody's perspective about their problem or the issue that they have in life. So we need right thinking in the midst of trials, and that's what James is addressing. That's why in verse 2 he says, consider it all joy. You know what he was saying? That is a command about your thinking. Think right, Christian. Have the right perspective about trials. So he's addressing our thinking in verse two. Verse 7, he says, let not man... Let not a man think or expect this will be the result. Again, he's addressing our thinking. Verse 2, he says, Think this way in the midst of a trial. Verse 7, Don't think this way in the midst of a trial. So that was just a great reminder for me that first and foremost, what I need help with in the midst of a trial, regardless of how big or little it is in life, I need to check my thinking. So I I want to remind us of a couple of well-known, favorite passages, but we need to leech our mind with biblical truth all the time because we are show that we are so short-sighted we have short memories I know I do so two passages I want you to look at Philippians chapter 4 and then we'll go to Romans chapter 12 and these are just exhortations and commands reminding us as Christians of how important it is to have biblical thinking especially in the midst of trials or hard times and this is part of God's solution this is key actually to God's solution in dealing with trials the right way you know it's always I find it always easier to listen to somebody with a major trial than to have it myself, right? Because I've always got the right wisdom. Oh, here's what you need to do, pal, to fix it. Well, I can fix that. That's so easy for us to do. Because we're, we're objective. We're outside the trial. We're thinking on a biblical principle. We're thinking on truth. Boy, it ain't so easy when you're in the midst of it, is it? So here's two good reminders. Philippians 4. Uh, finally, he talked about the peace of God. Boy, don't we need peace in the midst of a trial, don't we? A supernatural, abiding... Inner sense of satisfaction, a subtleness of the soul, being at rest with God, understanding He's totally in control. And that's actually the theme of verses four through seven is this super actually four through nine, peace of God, the God of peace and the peace of God. And one of the key ways you have the peace of God in your life in the midst of a trial is verse eight. It's controlling your thinking. Finally, brethren, then, this is a command. Whatever is true, that's the key one. Whatever is true. Think on reality. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent or anything worthy of praise, here's the key. This is the command at the end of verse 8. Let your mind dwell on these things. Think on these things. Meditate consistently on these things. Ruminate over and over again on these things. What are these things? Well, it starts out with the things that are true. Because it is so easy for us to think on and meditate on things that are not true in the midst of a crisis, a trial, or whatever it is. Uh, one more, Romans 12, if you have your finger there, on right thinking. Romans 12:1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, I urge you, believers, if you're a Christian, here's a command from the Apostle Paul. By the mercies of God, by the grace of God, by all the provisions that God has given you as a believer, and there are many. Present your body a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Key to doing that is verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not live like the world. Do not be a part of the world. Do not enjoy the world. Do not desire the world. Well, how does Satan get us to be conformed to this world? Well, he attacks our mind. If he can get our thinking, he's got everything else about us. So that's why it says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. Metamorphosis, that's the word. Do not be conformed on the outside of this world, but on the inside. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There it is. Think Right. It's an ongoing process. It is present tense. It is a lifestyle. It is continual. It is hard work. It is a discipline. Keep renewing your mind, renewing your mind, renewing your mind in accordance with God's thoughts, God's word, God's will, first and foremost, as it is found in Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12 and discover three, at least. Three principles that God would have us know to help renew our mind, replenish our mind, so that we're thinking in an ongoing manner, in a biblical way, in the midst of trials. And that will help us. That will help us through the the trial. So let's go ahead and look at verses 9 through 12. I just broke it up into three principles there um, to help us out. So James, by the way, you're reading this verses 1 through 8, and it says don't be uh, ask God for wisdom, believe, don't doubt, and then all of a sudden you got this transition in verse 9. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away, for the sun rises. And you're thinking, wow, that has absolutely nothing to do with verse 8. What is he talking about? James, I thought Paul was confusing. You're throwing me off here. And as a matter of fact, if you read, some commentators will say this very thing: verses nine through twelve have nothing to do with verses two through eight. Most commentators will say, "Yeah, it does." And if you just look at the context, it, nine through twelve has everything to do with verses one through eight. If you just dig a little deeper, verses nine through twelve follows up on verse eight, the warning. If you ask God for wisdom, He'll give you wisdom. But if you are double-minded, He's not going to give you wisdom. And so verses nine through twelve is the corrective to us as believers, so that we won't be a double-minded person. We won't be divided in our loyalties and how we think. That's how it's related. We also know it's related because in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That is the exact same word used in verse 2 where he began the passage. Trials. It's the exact same origin of the word in verse 13. Tempted or trials. This whole passage is about trials. Inner and outer. Subjective and objective. Trials of life and also temptation to sin. And also, verse 12, he says, uh, if you make it through trials, you'll be, you will have been approved by God. That's the exact same phrase he used earlier as well, being approved or tested by God in terms of his purpose. So 9 through 12 has everything to do with verses 8, and 9 through 12 is actually trying to correct or steer us away from being a double-minded person. In other words, we need to think properly in the midst of trials. He wants to address our thinking, and so that's what these three points or principles that I want to point out here all have to do with proper thinking in the midst of of trials point number one how should we think in the midst of trials well in times of trial all believers need to maintain a humble spirit a humble spirit verses nine and the first part of ten but let the brother okay here's one of the keys to keeping you from being a double-minded person and unstable it's having the right perspective the right thoughts and the right thoughts about self who is it easiest to think about it's easiest to think about ourselves isn't it i am thinking about myself all the time i am my greatest fan I don't know about you, but you are probably your greatest fan. So that's why he wants to keep our thinking about ourselves in check. And so that's verse 9. When you do think about yourself, because we're so preoccupied with self, we need to think in a godly manner, and that is we need to have a humble attitude and evaluation of ourselves. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, the way you think about yourself, verse 10, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation verses 9 and 10 talks about two different kinds of or categories of people the humble people or the uh, lowly people and also those who are rich one translation in english if you're reading it you might be led to believe that the first group of people are believers and the second group are unbelievers that's not accurate this is actually talking about believers Verses 9 is talking about christians who are poor or don't have a whole lot of material possessions and then in verse 10 it's talking about rich christians who have material possessions so verses 9 and 10 is talking about believers, both rich and poor. And if you are rich or if you're a poor, regardless, you need to think accurately about yourself. And the first thought you need to have about yourself, it needs to be one of humility. Humble, to be humble about self, to be honest about your evaluation of self. What, is, what does it mean to be humble? What is humility? Humility literally means to think lowly of yourself. That's humility. But it's more than that. It's to think accurately in a lowly evaluation of yourself. Because you can have a false humility that is not true. So it's thinking accurately about having a lowly view of yourself. And the lowly view of self, you're to, supposed to compare yourself not to other people, and that's how you get your lowly view. It's comparing yourself to Almighty God, to Jesus Christ. That makes us real low, doesn't it? That puts it in proper perspective. We're not just low, we are nothing. We are worthless, we are undeserving. And so this is key in terms of keeping us from being double-minded and, and not... Uh, relying on our own resources our own strength in and of ourself or a wrong view about self when we ask God for help during the trials we focus totally on God and on him and on his glory and his sufficiency and nothing in and of ourselves whether you're rich or poor going through a trial now I would ask you who has the more difficult time going through life's trials rich people or poor people you don't need to answer it out loud but it's a great question. Who has a more difficult time dealing with life's trials? Is it rich people or poor people? Now, if you said rich people, uh, the ant, that was wrong. If you said poor people, uh, that was wrong. Uh, it, because it depends. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. We're, we are all just as feeble and weak. And when you strip away all the materialistic things of the world, we all end up at the same place with absolutely nothing, totally in poverty and impoverished before God as we are an all-needy people. And if you answered and said, well, rich people handle life trials a lot better than poor people, I'd say, well, then look at Hollywood. Because I don't see them handling life trials very well. All these famous people who are just time after time going through life's trials and they've got all this money that they've thrown at their problems and it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't solve their problems. And many times they, they are addicted to drugs and alcohol and all these things they're trying to drown away life's trials with and it's not working. So the answer to that is uh, it's equal for everybody. And that's what James is saying here. It doesn't matter your lot in life. You can't make up an excuse before God based on your circumstances to question God asking Him, why am I in this situation? Because if you're a poor person, it's easy for a poor person going through a trial who is deficient or they don't have all these resources to say, woe is me. The woe is me mentality. That's what they struggle with. And then... Those who are rich and have an abundance, many times when they go through a trial, their attitude in terms of battling with pride might be, well, how dare God allow me to go through this trial? I mean, after all, think about who I am and all that I own and my status and my prestige and my reputation. And so they are, they struggle with self-sufficiency. And so that's why James is saying it doesn't matter your lot in life, whether you're rich or poor, whether you have material resources or not. We all go through trials. Trials are not unique to anybody. Trials are not unique to you. The answer is all the same. It needs to be you need to humble yourself before God, because later in the epistle, James chapter four, verse six, he reminds us God opposes the proud, but gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble grace to make it through life's trials. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So evaluating self properly, I want to go back to Romans 12 because Paul helps us with this in that exhortation that we just read in verses 1 and 2. He said you need to renew your mind continually thinking properly God's thoughts. And you need to think properly God's thoughts about yourself. That's where it needs to start with all of us. And that's why in verse 3, the verse we didn't read earlier, Romans 12:3. Verse 2, renew your mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, to every Christian, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And that's exactly what James is saying here in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. When you think about yourself, think accurately. Every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think accurately as to have sound judgment. So we need to be realistic and sober in an assessment and judgment of ourselves. And the first thing when we evaluate ourselves is from a human point of view, we are the creation of God. We are sinful. We are fallen. We were undeserving. We deserve death and hell. And yet God in His grace saved us. Not anything that we have done or because we deserved it. And we've been adopted into the family of Jesus Christ who now loves us and we are secure in our relationship with Him For now and for all eternity, because of the sheer grace and sovereign will of God. That is an honest, proper, humble view of self, isn't it? You know what that does? That levels the playing field for everybody, whether you're rich or poor. Everybody stands on the same ground before a holy God as we are totally not self-sufficient before God in the midst of trials. And that's why he says when we evaluate ourselves, we need to have a humble spirit. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So one of the keys to bypassing being double-minded is to be humble about self, honest about self, proper evaluation. Let the brother of humble circumstances, glory, literally the Greek word is, but let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his high position. This is a, a contrast. It's ironic that so if you are being in a trial and you're a poor believer and you don't have all these world's goods and you don't have money and you don't have resources you need to have that isn't your only lot in life the real lot you have before god is that you're forgiven of sin and you're actually in the family of god for all eternity you know the king you know him personally and actually you are very rich poor christian that's what he's saying this is a proper view of self don't focus on what you don't have in this life focus what you have in christ and focus what you have in eternity and reserve for you up in heaven that is a proper evaluation of self and that's why he says As a believer, as a Christian, even though you don't have material goods and money, you have a high or elevated position in terms of your status before God. And you need to boast in that, literally rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Think of all you have. Okay, maybe I don't have all the food in this world, but I have the bread of life. I know him personally. Or maybe I'm short on drink and provision in this life, but I know the water of life. His name is Jesus. Maybe I don't have material goods, or I don't own a home, or I can hardly afford my rent, but I have a mansion made by God Himself reserved in heaven for me. That is the proper view of self. That isn't just positive thinking. That is biblical truth. And that's why James can say with confidence, if you are a believer in this life deprived of all this world's goods, exalt, boast, glory, think about your exalted position in the family of God. That will change your thinking. That will give you proper perspective. That will make it easier to go through life's trials. Because then you can say with Paul, well, I can handle all these trials in life because these trials in life, they really aren't anything compared to the riches and glory that I'm going to inherit in the future. It is worth it. No pain, no gain. It's the continual reminder here. Having the right perspective about self. And then he goes on to rich Christians who struggle in a little different way in terms of their trials because they do have this world's goods. And so their temptation is going to be to depend on this world's goods, their resources to get them out of trials in life, and it ain't going to work. That's why he says in verse 10, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Let the rich man think about, boast in the real situation and the status before God is that he, he ain't nothing. You ain't nothing. Your money gets you nowhere. Your real lot in life is that you are... Humiliated, You are low. You are a saved sinner before a great God. And that's a great reminder to those who have the wealth and materialism of this world, which is actually many Americans, is our, our security is not in this world, is it? It is in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and, and God the Father and the, the Holy Spirit. And so this helps them. This defines a plumb line for them to have proper perspective about the realities and the trials in life. Rich people, rich Christians. By the way, it's not a sin to be rich. You can be a Christian and be rich and have this material wealth and goods because God has blessed you with those, but you need to have the right perspective about those. You need to be humble before God. Humble. A humble spirit. That's where we need to start. So, in times of trial, all believers need to maintain a humble, proper attitude about self. Let's go on to number two. In times of trial, all believers need to maintain an eternal perspective. And this intersects with the last truth an eternal perspective. He goes on after talking to the rich Christian. Don't glory in all your wealth and riches, but boast and boast only in the Lord and the fact that He saved you and has given you an inheritance. And we need to think about heavenly things. We need to have an eternal perspective. And we need to have a realistic view of this life. This life is but uh, a vapor, isn't it? It just whoosh, goes by. We had our fifth anniversary at GBF. Just whoosh, can't believe how quickly that went by. Man. So life is so short. And that's what James is reminding us here um, Okay, rich man, don't trust in your riches. If you do, you're going to be in trouble because like flowering grass, he will pass away. The rich man and all of his riches. You can own the wealth, uh, all the wealth of the world. When they killed Saddam Hussein, I just remember they found a one cash that he had. Of It had $8 billion of American cash in it. And all of his 36 mansions and whatever else. And then when he was dead, boom, it was gone. Can't take it with you. And it goes by quickly. And that's the reminder here. We all stand in the same place. He came into this world, as Job said, with nothing and naked. We all leave this world the same way, don't we? And that's the reminder. And that forces us to have an eternal perspective. When tragedies come in life and there's a death or somebody gets cancer, immediately strips away all the unimportant things in life and puts everything in proper perspective. Death, doesn't it? And that's, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes said. It's better to go to a funeral, to a memorial service, and be reminded of what matters in life. Then to go to a celebrating, rejoicing party that gets us distracted and doesn't get us to think about reality. So that's what James is trying to do. He's trying to remind us of how to have an eternal perspective, think about life and how quickly it passes because it's like a flower that's beautiful in February in Israel and then by the time it's May, it's brown, dried up and dead and gone. And that's what life is like. Verse 11, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower... Falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away or literally be dried up and shriveled. And basically, it's just speaking of death. Death is just around the door or around the corner. In times of trial, all believers need to maintain an eternal perspective. Just again, we need to be reminded of biblical truth because James said when you pray, pray in faith. And we said last week, faith all oh, comes from only one source. Faith comes from Scripture. Faith comes from God's supernatural revelation. Romans 10.17 So I want to remind us of a few scriptural passages to encourage us in faith and also to grow our faith. And three passages I want us to look at. You can put your finger there. 1 Peter chapter 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 12. And they all have the same theme. And they're asking the Christian, reminding the Christian, even commanding the Christian in the midst of a trial. Where do you, when you're going through traps and trials and whatever, we usually have our head down as we're trying to sidestep everything and we got our eyes in the wrong place. We need to have our eyes up on the source. On the source of provision, on the source of strength, and on the source of victory. And so Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, let's go ahead and look at that. Great reminder. I'll start at verse 3, but I want to really highlight verses 6 and 7 First Peter chapter 1 Peter reminding us as Christians to have an eternal perspective especially in the midst of trials think about it this week in your own heart and in your own mind did you have a trial this week because I asked that question last week did you have a trial last week what was that trial how did you deal with that trial what was your attitude in the midst of that trial how often were you looking to God in the midst of the trial how often were you allowing circumstances and emotion to dominate your thinking in the midst of that trial? This is all that James is talking about. This will help us. Supernatural truth in dealing with trials. And so, Peter, uh, in the first chapter, verse 3 down to verse 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, that's a future eternal perspective. A living hope that's in the future through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance, that that is also future. See, most of the good stuff is all future. Reserved by God in heaven. We live in light of the future. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Reservations for you. you ever been to Magiano's restaurant down at Santana Row? Wow, great restaurant. But you, you can't just waltz in there. They'll turn you away. You need a reservation. That's just a footnote. Um, (laughs) Reservation. Reserved for you in heaven. Verse 5. Those of you who are believers who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Everything about this is future oriented. Verse 6, here's the key. In this you greatly rejoice. See, we can have joy now in light of the future. Not have joy now in light of my wonderful circumstances now because usually I don't have wonderful circumstances right now all the time. That's not reality. That is not life. Life is hard. Where does our joy come from? It's proper thinking about the future based on what God has done on our behalf and will do for us. In this, in the future, in what Christ has done and will do for you, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, see this is reality. The Bible is realistic. I love it. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, I love that phrase. Life is short, the trials are short, the pain is short, it will not last, there will be relief. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while in this fallen, cursed earth, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That is the Christian life. Distressed by various trials. See, they just keep on coming and keep on coming and keep on coming. It is relentless. Verse 7, in order that God's doing something. God's trying to accomplish something. In order that the proof of your faith... See, He's proving our faith, establishing our faith, growing our faith, stretching our faith, revealing our faith through trials. In order that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. Wow! Your faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Did you feel like you got singed this week by a trial? Singed by fire? even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, that is the hope of the Christian. And you know what that is? That's having an eternal perspective. Get eyes off of this world, off of these circumstances. Get them up. Get them on heaven. Get them on a reward. Get them on, on the Lord Jesus Christ and our inheritance. Another one, Colossians chapter 1. And then we'll go to Hebrews 12. So in Colossians, uh, sorry, yeah, Colossians 3, sorry. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Philippians, Colossians, sorry. Philippians, Colossians, chapter 3. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul talks about the Christian, how we have been chosen by God, forgiven in time by God, adopted into his family. We are believers, all our sin is forgiven. And yet we still live in a fallen world until the inheritance, until Jesus Christ comes again. And in the meantime, this needs to be our attitude and perspective of how we live in this fallen world in the midst of trials. Uh, Chapter three, verses one and the following, he says, if then you Christian have been raised up with Christ, that means forgiven by him, saved by him. and, And you have, if you're a real believer, keep seeking the things above. That's a lifestyle present tense. Keep on seeking the things above. Keep on thinking about heaven, heavenly truths, biblical truths, eternal truths. Get your eyes off of this world. That'll kill you in the midst of a trial if you can't get your eyes up. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. See, it's personal. It's on your Savior. It's on your Lord. He loves you. He's your elder brother. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. He is your provision. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand. He's sitting down authoritatively. he He is totally in control. That's what that means. He's sitting down as reigning king and judge and sovereign over everything. That is your Jesus. Verse 2 Set your mind, fix your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. See, it's all about our thinking, right perspective, thinking on eternal things in the midst of trials. They, just, they come and go for a little while, passing. Well, it seems like it's been a long while. It's been a year. It's been two years. It's been five years. I know, but it'll pass. It'll pass. That's the promise of Scripture. Okay, one last one on eternal perspective, and that's Hebrews 12. Uh, it start, The chapter 12 starts with the word therefore, and that's, that therefore is making us look back to chapter 11. And what we just saw in chapter 11 is all these believers who were persecuted and murdered for their faith. You talk about trials. We, we ain't seen nothing yet from most of these people Sawed in half for their faith and martyrs and deprivation. Therefore, in light of those who have gone before you, have lived before you, and how they survived, and how did they deal with trials? Well, he's going to tell us, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses of these wonderful saints, faithful people, persevered, Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run the race of the Christian life, which is hard. Verse 2, And how do you run? You run with your head up, eyes focused straight ahead, not on the ground, not watching your feet, not looking behind you. Verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, locked in on the Savior. That's an eternal perspective. The author. See, he started our Christian life the next word the perfecter he will culminate and finish our Christian life that's Jesus that's who we need to be looking at the beginning and the end the first and the last Jesus the author and the Perfector of our faith he's going to bring everything to culmination and completeness he's going to finish the story and it's a beautiful story it's going to be who for the joy set before him he endured the cross he endured trials he endured suffering he is our model we follow him "...who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." Very similar to Colossians chapter 3. So just some great biblical reminders from Scripture, the living Word of God that pierces our hearts, our minds, our conscience, our soul, and literally gives us faith to believe. Faith to endure. Because that's where faith comes from, is from God's supernatural revelation of His Word. So in times of trial, all believers need to maintain an eternal perspective. Life is so short, number three. In times of trial, all believers need to remember their heavenly reward. We hinted at this, but James gets more specific in verse 12. So read all verses 9 through 12 in light of verse 8. Don't be double-minded. Don't be double-minded. And if you're poor in this life, exalt in the glories you have in God Because of your relationship with Him. Don't be double-minded. If you're rich in this life, don't depend upon material possessions to save you and get you out of your trials. Somebody somebody dies that you love and know, suddenly, how's your money going to help you? It's not going to help you. Don't be double-minded. Don't be double-minded thinking this life will go on forever and ever and that your material possessions can help you. Verse 12, don't be double-minded, but rather... Know that you will be blessed by God if you persevere. And so that's verse 12. Blessed is a man or the one, literally any Christian. It's not just a man, it's any Christian. Regardless of your age, if you have faith in Christ, you will be blessed. Blessed. Happy, some translations say. Happy. Inner joy. This is not external, superficial, fading happiness based on emotion. This is a deep-seated, inner, satisfaction, peace, Joy of the soul that comes supernaturally only from knowing God and only from the indwelling Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word. An unbeliever cannot have this kind of blessedness. This is one of the greatest gifts that God gives to His people, to His children. In the midst of the worst kind of trial, they can be blessed. By the way, verse 12, this is taking us back to verse 2 of how the whole thing started out. Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy when you enter into a trial, when you live through a trial, and as you're leaving the trial, consider it all joy. Consider the process all joy. Consider the fact that God is sovereign in that and He's growing your faith. Consider that joy. And if you do make it successfully through the trial, the answer is in verse 12, blessed. If you made it through the trial and you endured and you obeyed God through it, and you dealt with the trial courageously and calmly and in faith, as a result, you will be blessed. That's what blessed means. You'll have deep inner satisfaction, rest, and peace. This is a beatitude. Blessed is the Christian who has persevered through trials. Successfully. By doing what God has called us to do. And the word again for trials in verse 12. Primarily in verses 2-12, through because the word trial can refer to internal trials and sometimes temptation to sin, but it can also specifically refer to the external objective trials of life that are just neutral that confront everybody. And verses 2-12, through 12, the context, these are just the, the trials of daily living. This is not temptation to sin. These are just trials that everybody faces in life. Hardships. And he says, blessed is the believer who perseveres under trial. By the way, that word persevere has come up a couple of times. Uh, it came up earlier, uh, endurance, persevere, verses 2 and 3, all the way to actually 2, 3, and 4. And there are a couple of words in the New Testament for persevere, perseverance. And there's two specific Greek words. And one, uh, makrothumia, means having perseverance or patience with hard or difficult people. And then the word that James keeps using here is having patience in the midst of trials and circumstances in life. It's, the emphasis is not on people. The emphasis is on these objective, neutral trials that everybody faces in life. The circumstances of life is the nuance. So, blessed is the Christian who perseveres and endures in the trials of life in a godly manner. And once you've made it through one trial, that was like in, you're in the weight room and you just, you're doing, uh, what are these called? Curls. I used to lift weights about 25 years ago. So, anyway, you're doing curls. And you do five, and then you start to feel some pain. And then you get up to ten, and you feel more pain. And with each rep you're doing, that is a trial in life. That's what God is doing with trials in life. It's repetitious. The more reps there are, the stronger you get. And that's why we have so many trials. He's building our spiritual muscles, developing godly character. And blessed is the Christian who perseveres under each trial that comes their way, whether big or small. And as you make it through these trials, God is forcing you to flex uh, your spiritual muscles, and, and do away with all this superfluous stuff that hinders your spiritual life and your spiritual growth. All that extra stuff that just gets in the way. That's being purged away and burned away. And once you've made it through the trial, with each trial that confronts you, for once the Christian uh, has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now this is a long-term perspective. Our entire life can be a, seen as a series of trials. Isn't that exciting? How encouraging. Try that and sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and see if they want to become a Christian. Boy, if you become a Christian, you're going to have a string of trials your whole life and it's going to be really painful. And this world has fallen and the devil is real and he's coming after you. That's bad news. You've got to give them the good news eventually. But it's real news. The real news is our entire life is just filled with trial after trial after trial after trial after That's why when I am counseling people There are some people that just want to tell you about their problems all the time. And you want to sympathize because you're a pastor and you get paid to do that. And you got to do that and and pray and give counsel and write and encourage. But at some point, you've got to remind the Christian, okay, number one, you're just thinking about self all the time. And number two, did you realize there are other people who have trials too? And number three, reality check, that's life. Life is hard. Life is just filled with trials. So we've got to correct and amend our thinking. But when you make it through a trial, blessed is the man who pers- blessed is the Christian who makes it through a trial, because God is going to grow them. God's going to help them grow in perseverance, spiritual muscles getting strong. And at the end of their life, if they made it through all these trials and through the gauntlet of life, if, if you will, as you're getting all these bruises along the way, in the end, God will be pleased with you. He will be a You will be approved by Him and you will receive the ultimate reward. And that's what he says in verse 12. At the end of life, when you breathe your last, and immediately your soul is catapult instantaneously into the presence of God, you inherit the greatest gift of all, which he calls the crown of life, which is actually eternal life, culminated and fulfilled once and for all, that you began to receive in this life, knowing God, but then it's glory in heaven. Which The book of Revelation, that's why Revelation is so great. It reminds us of the ultimate crown of life that we're going to receive at the end of our Christian life when we get to heaven. The crown of life is being with God, eternal life with Him in heaven where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. That's the reality, and that's what he's emphasizing here. So it is an emphasis, again, on the eternal perspective, but specifically about the eternal perspective is we're going to inherit the crown of life, which is salvation in Jesus Christ, and that is the greatest Gift that anybody could ever receive and actually should, that should swallow up and minimize as it towers over and shadows over any trial we have in this life. Nothing in this life compares to the glory we're going to receive in the next life because we know Jesus Christ as believers. Our heavenly reward. In times of trial, all believers need to remember their heavenly reward, salvation in Jesus Christ. And that, I love that phrase at the end, which the Lord has promised To those who love him. See, again, it's just a great reminder of what true Christianity is all about. It's not a religion, it's not about traditions and rituals and going through the motions. It is about a personal relationship. His name is Jesus. He's my blessed Savior. That's why I love Philippians in chapter 2 and 3, where Paul keeps talking about my Jesus, my Jesus. How personal is that? He's not just the universal, distant, neutral Lord of all people. My Jesus, I love Thee. Very personal. Literally, to the ones who love Him. The individuals who love Him. With that, let's go to Romans chapter 8. That great passage which we can take comfort in in so many ways in times of trial. And at the same time, the emphasis is on those who love God and the ones that God loves. So I'm I'm thinking about a trial that I had last week. Out of the 42, I'll just pick that one, okay? And then I want to I want to funnel it through this grid. Am I being humble about this specific trial? God help me. Do I have an eternal perspective about this trial? It will pass. Life is short. What's eternal matters in God? Am I taking this trial and is it minimized and swallowed up in the reality of the crown of life, salvation in Christ Jesus that will last forever and even begins in this life, that's the way He wants us to think about the trials of life. That's the Christian worldview. That's how we deal with trials. The truth of the living Word of God. So we don't have to resort to the things of the world, distractions, entertainment, literally alcohol, drugs, and everything else. They do to to numb themselves and to dumb themselves so they don't have to face life. That is the world's solution. But we can continue to live life in reality in the midst of hard times with a deep-seated joy that comes only from God. And with that, we'll look at Romans 8:28. We know, we know, we Christians know only we know this. This is a secret that believers only know. We know that God—that's where our perspective needs to be, right on God and God's Word. God causes; He is totally in control. He is working. Nothing has been allowed to happen apart from His purposes. We know that God causes all things. Did you know that that in the Greek, all things means everything in in this passage? Everything. It doesn't matter what your trial is in life. It falls under the umbrella and the purview of this great promise. All things. That's good things, bad things, ugly things, neutral things, things you didn't even know about. They all fall under this great verse. God causes all things to work together for good. And so you can put your trials in there. Think about the trials you have in life. Your family, your work, your situation, your finances, your job, your health. Put it under there. All things. God causes all things. Even the bad things. It's not saying these are good things. But He causes all things to work together for good. To work together by His sovereign, providential hand. He has a plan. He's working it out. It is ongoing and guaranteed. God causes all things to work together for good. The good for who? Well, for the good of believers, those who know God, and for the good of God and His glory. He works all things together for good for those who love God. What a great definition of a Christian. What is a Christian? It's someone who loves God. Someone who knows God and knows Him in accordance with truth. We know Him through Jesus Christ. We know Him through Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' death that was substitutionary, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension on high, Jesus' reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how we know and love God. It is through the truth of Jesus Christ. And God works all things together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. And with that, the Christian can take great comfort and have confidence and even begin to contemplate and thinking about entertaining that challenging imperative in verse 2, consider it all joy only by the grace of God. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for His Word and His grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this day, the Lord's day. I thank You that we could come together as Your people to ascribe to You majesty that You are due, that the Lord Jesus Christ is due. Worship You. Interact with the saints and be encouraged and edified with other children of God. God, how that builds up our spirit. We thank You for that gift. For sharing prayer requests and being encouraged to pray for one another as You've commanded. And God, also thank You again for the treasure of Your Word Scripture, Your voice, Your mind to us in every area of life. God, I pray for anybody in our midst that has a trial, that they've been burdened by, that they've been overwhelmed by, that these scriptural truths would just light up in their mind, in their heart, in their soul, today, all week long, reminding them that You've got them by the hand. You want to walk them through the trial. And You want to do it in a way that helps them grow that gives them joy, that gives you glory. But, God, we need your help to do it. And so we thank you for the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, our Comforter who enables that to happen, the one who illuminates Scripture and understanding for us and helps us apply it to our lives. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your love for us as we commit our time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.